Welcome to the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. My guest today is Carolina Di Robertis. It's very exciting for me because this is her third visit to our studios because she's been putting out best-selling books one after another, and we're hoping that this is her third. It's called Gods of Tango. Bienvenidos and welcome, Carolina Di Robertis. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a joy. Well, it's really a pleasure for me. With your first book, The Invisible Mountain, I was very excited because one of the historic characters in your book, the student leader from the 1950s, Ernesto Bravo, is a real-life friend of mine. So it was very exciting to come across him in your book. And then years later, I saw him again in Havana, where he's been living for many decades. And I played him our interview where we discussed him. And he was shocked. And I think he was shocked to be fictionalized, but he was also so pleased. I'm so glad that he was pleased about it. Yes, because it meant he was remembered. It's such an incredible coincidence that you brought that to my attention. In The Invisible Mountain, I really strove to weave true history with imagination and fiction. And Ernesto Bravo was someone who was unjustly brutalized by the police under Perón. And there was a big cover-up of the event. And I found this, this sort of footnote in history and wove that into my character's experiences and really strove to stick to the facts and do honor to the story of his survival and the resistance that came came out of that experience. So I'm so glad to hear that his reaction to learning about his presence in the novel was positive. Very positive. And of course, he has continued the path of resistance. He's now a man deep into his 80s. And he and his wife, Estela Bravo, are filmmakers. Yes, Estela Bravo has made an incredible documentary about children of the disappeared in Argentina. Yes, and he was part of it and is oh, part of it. Wow. They're a team, actually. Before I knew that Ernesto Bravo was connected to the filmmaker Estela Bravo, she generously shared a copy of her documentary with me because I was researching the disappeared for my second novel, Perla. And, and reached out to her, and so we had already made that connection around the piece of children of the disappeared. It's, el mundo es un pañuelo, is what we say in Uruguay, which means the world is a handkerchief. Really quite small. Yes, and that was another thing that I've noticed now, having read all of your novels. Oh, thank you so much. All of your novels so far, because you're a very prolific writer. Thank you, Nina. And you're still such a young woman. The books all begin in one place and end in another, and they're usually the same two places, Uruguay and Argentina. What a profound observation. <laughs> I don't know that I was conscious of that until now. It's true. You know, my first book was set primarily in Uruguay, the second two so far primarily in Argentina. I seem to be incapable of writing a book about Uruguay that doesn't have Argentina in it or a book about Argentina that doesn't have Uruguay in it. Because for me, these two countries, their cultures really interweave and interpenetrate each other. In fact, I really see myself as a Rio Platense writer. And the word Rio Platense means from the Rio de la Plata, meaning from the two countries, Argentina and Uruguay. You know, in some ways, culturally and historically, it's one bigger region. For me, these two countries, their boundaries really blur. 
And that's your ancestry. Yes, I'm of Uruguayan descent. Both of my parents are Uruguayan, but my paternal grandparents were Argentinians who were exiled under Perón. So while I primarily feel my roots in Uruguay, I also have an enormous family in Buenos Aires and roots and culture and, and sensibility across the river as well. So I suppose it reflects my experience. And the fact that my books begin in one country and in another also perhaps reflects my immigrant sensibility that coming into full self is in some ways interwoven with migration. And now in this new book, Gods of Tango, immigration is the central theme because mm -hmm. the young immigrant, Leda, comes from Italy and she goes to Buenos Aires. Can you read us a little bit about that? Sure, of course, I'd be happy to. I will begin by reading from a moment in which Leda, at the age of 17, has just arrived in Buenos Aires. She finds herself unexpectedly alone, and this is a description of the conventillo, or crowded tenement, where she comes to live. It took weeks to grow accustomed to the noise. The clatter and roar never abated, not even at night, not for an instant. She didn't know how to hear herself inside so much sound. Perhaps silence had existed in this city once, long ago, before the immigrants had poured in with their thousands of jostling voices and hands itching for work, routing any last traces of quiet. In the conventillos, which earned their name, she'd learned, from their cramped, spare nature, like the convents that house nuns and monks, there was always the clang of water tubs, the drag of crates across scuffed tiles, the bristling duet of a man fighting with his wife, the shout or squeal or hungry moan of children, mother's reproaches and lullabies and threats, the stampede of boys just back from hawking newspapers on trams, the tired laughter of men having a smoke at the day's end, the gossip of women as they put laundry on the line, the chorus of a family bickering over dinner, scolding the older kids for taking too much bread. On the street, the din thickened with the constant beat of horse hoofs drawing carriages, vendors with handcarts shouting their wares, fresh bread as good as your mother's, shoes, a pan that will drive your wife wild. The cracks and whips and groans of wheels, women gossiping through windows with neighbors on their way to the market with their baskets, a respite from the strict sphere of home. You just heard Carolina de Rivortes reading from her new novel, Gods of Tangle. Can you read us some more? I'd be delighted. Thank you, Nina. I'll fast forward a little bit in Leda's journey, and because she has found herself unexpectedly alone, she discovers that she cannot survive on her own as a single woman unmarried in Buenos Aires. There are not enough jobs that women are allowed to work in this kind of hazardous environment, but she doesn't want to go back home to her village in Italy. She's haunted by some things in her family past. She finds herself trying on men's clothes and subconsciously contemplating the idea of passing as a man in order to survive in this new place. And this is something that we know women have done throughout history, though the stories are vastly undertold. So I'm going to read from a moment in which Leda puts on men's clothes in secret in the middle of the night for the first time. It was shocking how comfortably his clothes fit. The shirt swelled a little over her breasts. 
It felt strange to have two layers of fabric between her thighs. How different it must be to walk with a sheath of trousers between your legs rather than a crowd of petticoats rustling around them. She tried it, stalking the room, hesitantly at first, then more boldly, imagining how Dante might have strode on his way to work in the mornings, full of muscle and determination, full of hope. And if he passed another man, he would not modestly bow his head and avert his eyes, but rather nod to him, chin high, shoulders squared against the world. Wasn't that how men did it? She wasn't sure. She knew how it looked from the outside, this walk of men, but not how it felt from within. She tried it, walked an imaginary street, passed an imaginary man, nodded, not slow forehead down as women did, but quick chin up. She felt preposterous, but she also felt something else, a delectable rush. She took the clothes off quickly, then stared at them, bunched on the floor. What had she done? She would never do that again. In that instant, with all her soul, she swore that she never would. She broke the vow the following night. Wow. So this is when things begin changing here. As a reader, I wondered what was going to become of that. I flashed back to Shakespeare. Ah, yes, to Shakespeare. All of the Midsummer Night's Dream, as you like it, cross-dressing that happens in, yes. in those classics. Yes, and so I was wondering, well, where is this going to take us? And I was really quite surprised where it did take us. And how was mm -hmm. it going to introduce us to the gods of the tangle? Well, of course, it creates a great deal of tension for Lida to cross these gender lines and to really push the boundaries of the limited gender roles she's been assigned. A lot of opportunity opens to her when women have dressed as men and passed as men in history, whether as cross-dressers or whether as transgender people. They have sometimes had accesses to more privilege in society, which is different than the experience of male to female cross-dressers or transgender people in history simply because of the structure of sexism at the same time that she gets a lot more privilege and a lot more access to the underworld of the tango to jobs that men can do to the everyday you know privileges of being a man she also is in a much more extreme state of danger because if she's discovered of course she could be subject to great violence and she knows that so please read more I'll read from a time later on when Leda is now Dante and she is passing as a man and she is now able to join a group of Dango musicians. At that time in the 1910s, in the very early days when the Dango was still unvarnished, the first years of the old guard of the Dango as we know it now, it was still something that was played in the tenements of the poor, in seedy cafes, in brothels, and it was very much a male-dominated underworld. The only women who could enter those spaces were really prostitutes, respectable women, so-called, did not have access to those spaces. So now that she is passing as a man, she is able to join Dango Orchestra as a violinist. So this is a moment when she's playing Dango on a tour of the Argentinian countryside and contemplating what it means for her. The Dango, the music itself, it seemed to carry something of this land in it. It seemed a strange thought, absurd, that music could somehow contain the pulse or imprint of the earth where it began. It seemed like the kind of thought that got people carted to insane asylums, and yet, some nights, 
as she played on those torch-lit summer stages, she felt the continent beneath her feet, the bedrock buried far under the wooden planks, moan in grief. Or perhaps it was pleasure. She didn't know. But the moan was there. It wrapped itself around the backbone of Joaquin's bass, those solid notes that formed a skeleton around which the melody could flex and breathe. The moan sailed along the underside of the bandonion's warm howl and echoed between the piano's restless notes. It rose and fell around them, a ghost sound in their midst, a disembodied echo, a throb of untold wounds and glimmers and urges and colors, the throb of America, the continental heartbeat unleashed. She kept this secret along with all the others. She played for herself. She played for no one. She played for America. Very beautiful. Thank you. What was your own connection to the tango that led to this book? Growing up as a Rioplatense immigrant, that is a immigrant with Uruguayan and Argentinian roots, the tango has always been in my home, in my family, in the ether of my surroundings. So I grew up in three different countries, none of which was my family's country of origin. But my mother's father had composed tangos in his spare time. And the sheet music, the published sheet music of one of his songs, Nunca Te Olvidaré, it was called, hung in the kitchen when I was growing up. It was always there. Tango music sometimes played in my home. After my father's mother died, he for years sang her favorite tango around the house in his sort of off-key way. Fumando Espero was called. Fumando Espero al hombre que yo quiero Tras los cristales de alegres ventanales And that song, you know, it's such a sensuous song. It's about a woman waiting for her lover and smoking a cigarette as she waits and looking forward to him giving her smoke from his mouth. And it sort of captured for me the sense that there was something in my root culture that was maybe out of step with the puritanism that surrounded me in the culture that we'd migrated to. So the tango has always been there. And I, you know, first learned to dance tango with my cousin in Argentina. I studied it more deeply as a dance and as a music in the process of researching this book, of course. So the tango's origins included the African culture, which you allude to in the book. Yes, absolutely. It was really important to me to weave that piece in. Afro-Argentinians are absolutely far too forgotten in the history of Argentina and of Latin America. Very few people know that at the turn of the 20th century, Buenos Aires was actually one-third black, quite a significant population. And, you know, that shifted a great deal. But in the meantime, in the 1880s and the 1890s, which are the decades where it's believed the tango first began to rise up, Afro-Argentinians were a tremendous part of that. Some of the earliest tangueros, or players of tango, Casimiro and Sinforoso, they were a duet of two black men who sort of moved around the poor neighborhoods of San Telmo and La Boca playing music. The first bandoneonists, even though that's a German instrument that came with German immigrants. It's like a little accordion. Yeah, it sort of sounds, it's that sound that when you hear it, you think tango, that accordion-like, kind of wailing, rich sound. That's the bandoneon. It actually came from Germany. However, it was a black man who first really innovated it into the tango. The very early tangos had percussion, they had drums that fell out later when the waves of European immigrants came and, and it started to shift. 
And then once the elite of Buenos Aires began to pay attention to the tango after it caught fire in Paris in 1913, then the piano was introduced, an expensive instrument that you have to have in the room. In the early days, in the late 1800s, you know, people drummed on whatever they had, and the polyrhythms of Afro music are absolutely under the surface of tango music even today. However, that said, I did a tremendous amount of scholarly research for this book and was deeply struck by how many tango historians, including those who write in Spanish in Argentina and are Argentinians, really want to deny or diminish the contribution of black Argentinians to tango music. And tango music combines so much pain and joy at the same time. I think that's where the sensuality of it comes. And even... I think that's very astute. I think that's very true about the tango. When you go to dance it, that little syncopation Mm -hmm. is kind of like where you cross the threshold from one emotion to the next. Mm, Yes. I I learned the tango... on the back of a comic book. In the old days, they had Arthur Murray ads for Arthur Murray dance studios, and they would show you the steps. And the left foot had the number one and the right foot oh, the number two. Right? And then there'd be little arrows showing you how to move wow. your feet to do the tango. And my boyfriend, who became my husband and I, I got married as a teenager, oh. we would hold the comic book up wow. and dance at the same time, moving our feet, doing this short, short, long, long. <laughs> Isn't was... that great? That's a great story. And then there's that moment where you go back. Mm-hmm. To go forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's that border where you cross. I always associate it crossing from one feeling to the next mm, mm-hmm. when you go back to go forward. And then I came across that same move again more recently in Tai Chi, mm-hmm. where we always go back to go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see some correlations between the, the feeling in the body yes. of Sango and the feeling in the body of Tai Chi. There's sort of a delicate shift of gravity from one foot to the other that's at its best is very smooth. At its um, best. At its best. <laughs> you, you strive for that. You know, you know, I studied Tai Chi as a teenager for a while, and I remember that that was sort of what you're going for. You know, right. that feeling of such a smooth shifting of weight from one foot to the other, you almost feel like you're gliding. It's almost like you're suspended just above the ground. And that feeling can happen in the dance of the tango as well. What you said about pain and joy together is so, so poignant and true about the tango. The early tangos, the 1880s, 1890s, and the very beginning of the 20th century, it was a happy dance. The percussion, it was more upbeat, and it was also very lewd and obscene. Like I said, it was part of this seedy underworld. And then with the arrival of all of these immigrants, it started to slow down and become more nostalgic and longing and yearning. Part of that is that the bandoneon is impossible to play fast because of the complexity of all the little keys, so it slowed the music down. But the other part is I really believe that it holds within it, the tango, the sadness and longing and yearning of being an immigrant, just absolutely longing for your homeland and not being able to return. That sense of being far from home that I think is true to so many immigrants, and it captures that yearning. In your book... Leitha eventually does, like in all your books, move to another country. (laughs) (laughs) But she she doesn't very much, or, or maybe almost never, has a yearning to go back to her original gender role. Mm-hmm. She never is yearning to see how it would feel to have to wear uncomfortable undergarments and bulky skirts and mm-hmm. 
high-heeled shoes. Very early on in writing this book, as I was sketching this character and bringing her to life, I knew that there were many possibilities about what her relationship would be to her disguise as a man. There are many possibilities there. Is it strictly a disguise? Is it something that reflects some internal part of who she is? And without giving up too much about the trajectory of the book, without putting out spoilers, I will say that for me, this is a story of a person on the transgender spectrum or a person who takes a journey exploring her relationship to the transgender spectrum. And when I say spectrum, you know, we, we are in a moment in our culture and society where we've been exposed to Caitlyn Jenner and, you know, mainstream societies having more access to transgender stories and images and that's marvelous. And we're learning, for example, to use the pronoun of the gender that people present as. And, and this is absolutely good and fantastic for people who identify as transgender. In this book, this is a person who is taking this journey before there are such labels and languages and sort of positive, respectful codes of conduct. Leda tells herself that she's just doing this to survive at first. And it's only later that her subconscious bubbles up what it means to her, this transition, and who she really is beyond the bounds of gender. And what I really wanted to do is give her room to explore the journey in a way that is absolutely beyond words because we have not always had the reflection of language for our queer truths in history. And so it's a more nuanced journey. I thought you handled her sexuality very, very well. Oh, thank you. And I could say there are actually very sexy, exciting passages. I'm glad you found them that way. Yes, this is definitely my raciest book so far. <laughs> yeah. I think her, her exploration of her sexuality and her exploration of her gender identity are kind of boundless and become a really, you know, core piece of her of her experience. Well, can you read us a little more from the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Where in the book is this? This takes place soon after Leda, who is now Dante, has assumed her disguise as a man and has settled into a new home. Sometimes, deep in the night, she unbound her aching breasts and sat alone in front of a cracked mirror, staring at herself in the light of a single candle, amazed at what she saw. A not-woman, not-man, a fallen-woman-risen-man. She couldn't tell what was stranger, that a man existed inside her or that the world accepted his existence. She wondered why no one saw through her disguise. Perhaps people could see only what they expected, what fit inside their vision, as if human vision came in pre-cut shapes more narrow than the world itself, and this allowed her to hide in plain sight, hidden but not silent. Now she practiced out loud in her little room. Nobody seemed to mind or even notice in the din of Larete's days. A wild freedom to let her hands sing tangos, to refine her sound, which grew a little clearer and brighter each day as she practiced in that cramped rectangle where sunlight shone only through the slit beneath the door, that humble, stinking space that she could love because it was her own, and where music possessed her, her first lover, her only lover, perhaps forever. Since even if by some miracle she managed to keep living on this knife's edge undiscovered, surviving, besting death at its own game, she could obviously never have a lover. She didn't mind the sacrifice. It seemed enough for a life to give yourself to music the way nuns give themselves to God, 
to vow, to surrender. Only music, after all, made life bearable. Only with music did she feel, what was it, free, happy? No, it was something else, awake. Music, arrow to pierce all barriers. Music, the great equalizer. Music, invader of centuries. Nectar of demons. Whiskey flask of God. So later in the book, she does find a lover. Yes. A series of lovers. Yes, contrary to her initial thought, she does come to realize that she actually can approach women. At first, she's terrified to do so. And really, she's terrified of even letting in the knowledge that the people that she wants to approach sexually, erotically, in fact, are women. But she begins to approach that idea and then crosses the line into that adventure. And what would you like to read us in closing? In closing, I would actually love to read from another point of view. Although the book is mostly from the point of view of this protagonist, Leda, who takes this journey, in each chapter I spend a little bit of time in the perspective of another person because I wanted to create a broader mosaic of the people of working-class Argentina from whom the tango arose. And so I'm going to read just a little bit from the point of view of Santiago, who is an Afro-Argentinian musician and the leader of Dante's band. This was a commitment that fueled him still, kept him striving even when the odds seemed insurmountable. He never married, and now, at 39 years old, he still couldn't think of marriage for fear a wife might split his heart away from music, blunt his hunger. Sometimes, when he was tired and the other members of his band had gone back home, he wondered why he was doing all of this and whether he should give up the fight, maybe find a wife and settle down into a life of nights by the hearth with a full belly and feet up, children who could climb all over him and accost him with shouts of delight. And in those moments of doubt, he called up his uncle's voice, saying, The tango is ours. Remember that. Remember where it came from. For every person who knows the roots of tango, there will be 100 people who do not, and maybe one day those who do know will all disappear. But the secret lives on. It beats in the drum, and in these syncopations, even when the drum is gone, in the steps of dancers who'll never know they're mimicking the steps of an old religion that arrived here in the festering bellies of slave ships like the only bright thing left in hell. A god and goddess dancing side by side the way they used to do before the tango made them face each other and embrace. Then those white people wonder why the dance makes them feel so alive. Don't worry about that. Don't ever try to tell them. Just give them the music and let music take care of the rest. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Carolina de Robertis. And how could people get this wonderful book, Gods of Tango? Well, happily, it's in independent bookstores throughout the cities in which people are listening to this station. And it's also available, you know, online and by request in bookstores as well. It's in the world. 
Well, I recommend it. I myself stayed up all night. Oh, my goodness. Sorry <laughs> for keeping you up. <laughs> no, well, it, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I read mine on Kindle, and I enjoyed every word of it. Oh, I'm so glad. And you like the e-readers? Oh, that's my preference. Oh, good. Interesting. Because I read in bed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's not heavy. Yes, that makes sense. Reading is reading, and now we just have more media through which to get to enjoy words. So I'm recommending this wonderful book, Gods of Tango by Carolina de Rebortis, to all the listeners. Please enjoy it. Thank you, and thank you, Carolina. Nina Serrano, it's been such a joy. Thank you for having me. Un placer. Igualmente. with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. award-winning Pacific Mambo Orchestra will be playing at the Seahorse Restaurant in Sausalito on Sunday, August 9th from 5 to 9 p.m. in a benefit for the family of our beloved KPFA broadcaster, Wesley Burton, who left this world too soon in a hit-and-run accident this spring. The Pacific Mambo Orchestra is an authentic 18-piece live band made up of some of the best musicians in the Bay Area. Join the KPFA family and friends in a night to honor Wesley and to continue to support his lovely family. It's a benefit for the family of Wesley Burton with Pacific Mambo Orchestra, Sunday, August 9th from 5 to 9 p.m. at the Sausalito Seahorse, 305 Harbor Way in Sausalito. For more information, go to SausalitoSeahorse.com. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley 89.1.